the axe of the blood god. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Axe of the Blood God, US Gamer's official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Kat Bailey. With me today, as always, my lovely co-host, Nadia Oxford. Hello, everybody. And as usual, we're talking about RPGs, big and small, Western and Eastern, because we love them. They're the greatest. And this week, we are going to be talking about the long-delayed Final Fantasy XIV Stormblood discussion, which I don't know why it's taken this long to get there, but we are going to do it. We did it. <laughs> Indeed. Uh... Mike has covered it pretty extensively on the site. Uh, You can go read his review there. And he comes on board uh, for a frank discussion about Final Fantasy XIV, Stormblood, um, its appeal to solo players, its appeal from an MMORPG perspective. Like, we kind of get into it. Um, Mm -hmm. I I break out all of the MMORPG jargon. (laughs) The raids and the queuing and the the cycling uh, and things like that. Yep. Yep, I am a I am a regular MMORPG expert, Nadia. <laughs> you could fool anyone, cat. <laughs> I've played my share of MMORPGs. I'll have you know that I put like many, many hours into Star Trek Online. <laughs> okay, that's fair. I put in many hours into Ragnarok Online. Yeah, that's what you said. Like the lost period of Nadia's life where she was playing tons of Ragnarok Online. Yeah, it was so cute. Still <laughs> is. It's still out there. People still play it. Do you still play it though? Not in a long time, but I go um, back to it every once in a while. Yeah, that's it's me. It's free to play now, so. Yeah, that's me and Star Trek Online. Like, I, they're still pushing out content updates, and every time I boot it up, like, everything is completely different and completely changed. <laughs> and then you get pissed off and turn it off again. No, I mean, I it's kind of cool, actually, like, mm-hmm. to see all of this new stuff and how things have changed since I last played it. I, I am glad these older RPGs, these older MMORPGs do get still, like, attention, even though their community is not huge anymore mm-hmm. they're still very dedicated anyone who's still hanging around after all that time is dedicated mm, absolutely i mean you have to i mean it's not always just the community sometimes it's just a free-to-play thing that mm-hmm. somebody like finds and like just picks up and keeps playing but final fantasy 14 is not free to play nope it has a uh it, it, it has a a price that you have to pay per mm. month which makes it even more remarkable it's like people are like yeah oh, screw it i'm willing to pay it yeah, you don't have too many RPG, uh, MMORPGs these days that have that subscription service anymore. Most of them have gone, even if they don't go free to play, you still have to pay like that. I think Elder Scrolls Online, you have mm-hmm. to pay for entry and then it's free. But Final Fantasy fourteen, you have to pay for entry and by month by month. Yes, indeed. But we get all of that into that with Mike. Other things to cover, we're going to talk very briefly about the Breath of the Wild DLC. And we're going to talk about... Uh, the Ease interview, which should be on the site. Like, I've been kind of pulling a little bit from it. Um, the first bit that I pulled from was his thoughts. Uh, the Nihon Falcom's president, Toshiro Kondo's thoughts on the PS Vita, the PS4, and the Switch. And why they are switching, or switching, moving <laughs> over to the PS4. Um and we'll have the full interview next week. But very briefly, have you played the Breath of the Wild DLC, Nadia? No, I haven't. It's actually kind of ironic because I haven't been at home this week. I've been uh, house-sitting for my parents. And you would think, okay, well, the Switch, I could take it with me. Why the hell not? But uh, I left it at home with my husband. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I haven't had a chance to play the DLC yet. I have read Mike's thoughts and I have read... Um, 
I don't think Katie was too impressed with it. Uh, Katie seemed less than thrilled with it, mostly because uh, well, she said that it's really hard. <laughs> yeah, that much I gathered. Yeah. Um, and she seems to have problems with Breath of the Wild in general. Um, she talks. Yeah. She talks at some length about how like she really loves the kind of the spontaneous moments, but that mm-hmm. she doesn't like the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, um, she doesn't like the the major dungeons. That I can agree with. I'm not a huge fan of the major dungeons, but like I said on Slack, uh, Nintendo got dragged for Skyward Sword, which had a really boring overworld, but had fantastic dungeons. Uh, whereas Breath of the Wild, I think, is really the reverse. Maybe that'll change with the second DLC pack. I don't know. But um, personally, myself, I prefer a big overworld to like really complex dungeons, but it's very much a a personal preference. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, the Breath of the Wild DLC, which came out last week, the Master Trials. Um, it's one of the most hardcore character uh, players. Um, if you're playing on hard mode, I, I guess there's one of the... I, I forget what they're called. They start with an L. Um, the really... Oh, the, um, the centaur guys. The Lionels are actually from the first game. My husband was really thrilled that they came back because he's a big fan of the, the original Zelda. But yeah, they're the Lionels, the big sort of lion centaur things. Are those the ones that... Like, are blue and, like, a freaking impossible to kill? <laughs> blue, my child. You don't understand no, the, the colors No, that's not the they dark nut. But I know, <laughs> I know what you're talking about now. Yeah, like, those things are nightmares. They, they are nightmares. Like, when I, I've only taken on a few silver Lynels, and when I heard that I think the, the DLC has gold Lynels, I'm like, yeah, I'm not about any of that. <laughs> <laughs> freaking gold Lynels, just what I need in my life. Apparently there's a Lynel in the opening area. <laughs> Oh, good. There was a, That's nice. There was a pretty good, uh, like, little image macro where, like, somebody's like, so, there's a Lionel in the opening area. I wonder how my four-attack Boku uh, club is going to do against it. <laughs> Update. I'm now hiding in a tree, and it seems to have made it mad. It's setting everything on fire. That sounds about right. The Lionels are actually very interesting enemies in that they're not extremely aggressive, but if you piss them off, they will hunt you down and kill you. I... So I've been playing Breath of the Wild again because, like, mm-hmm. I got sidetracked by a whole bunch of different things. Finally picked it up again um, after an extended break. About ready to finally un- uh, wake up my second divine beast. Like, Woo. it's because Breath of the Wild is one of those games where it just incentivizes messing around mm-hmm. and wandering around and doing things. And so I've been, like, kind of taking care of shrines. I went and found the Master Sword finally. I, I haven't pulled it out, but I saw it. Like, I looked at it. <laughs> it was pretty. I was like, there it is. There's the Master Sword. <laughs> and cooked a ton of things. Um, like, I now, I bought a house. Yeah, I got a house, too. Yeah, so, so I, I've been way behind. But, like, I'm catching up. I'm determined to finish this game. And I don't know, like, I guess it's valid to complain about the story maybe a little bit, but I like the minimalism of the story. I like that it doesn't overwhelm it. Um, yeah, and uh, when you think about it, the story kind of has to be that way, the way it is, a little bit fractured, because uh, it's very much a game that you can conquer in any order. Well, it has to be so, fractured, too, because you're piecing together Link's memories. Yes. And but, uh, it's a reasonable... I, I think it's a reasonable to say that Zelda does not have the presence that maybe you would like from her, that she's still mm-hmm. a secondary mm-hmm. character, that even though she's quote-unquote the hero, in the end, Link ends up coming to the fore, and that it would have been nice to learn more about the champions, but I'm okay with minimalism, to be honest, yeah. in this car- case. 
I do not think the story is the main appeal of Breath of the Wild. Um, no, and like I was saying uh, to you on Slack, uh, the appeal of uh, Zelda's characters to me is that minimalism. Like, um, there's that one painter guy who you find at every, nearly every stable uh, here and there, and um, he, you see him painting this landscape, and he's got his heart into it. He's like, you know, doing all these flourishes with his, with his brush. And if you look at his paintings, they're terrible. <laughs> <laughs> they look like kindergarten scrawls, but they're they're so cute. I just love that sort of that those little touches of personality it's like yeah they're not out there telling you their life story but they they have feelings they have things to say i think the thing is with breath of the wild is that when i'm playing it um it's just a game that i find so relaxing to play Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. so enjoyable and i just never get bored of it um which i think is really incredibly remarkable for a game like this where i often like structure i like being i i like strong systems i like Mm -hmm. being able to mess around a lot kind of on my own time i don't like being overwhelmed by the story but i also don't like a game that's just completely empty right right and yeah zelda so strikes that balance in so such a wonderful way that Mm -hmm. it's like it's impossible for me to be like no it's like it's hard it's easy for me to overlook maybe the complaints that other people might have yeah, I mean, just the fact that there was one time I climbed up to one of the taller mountains in the game, mm-hmm. and I just looked out over the landscape, and I could see all the shrines that I had, like, you know, conquered, and it was like, wow, I feel like Alexander the Great. I'm going to start weeping now because there's nothing left to conquer. It's such a beautiful game, and mm-hmm. I, like, we've gone over this, like, a hundred times, it feels like. It's such a beautiful game. It's so lush. Uh, like, when weather patterns sweep in, you're like, you just kind of shake your head and go, wow, this looks amazing. This is incredible. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. It, I love the armor. I, I think that having yeah. the armor, like, with all of the equipment hanging off adds so much to it. And like I said, it's a game that incentivizes just messing around and exploring because the what world's do you so think big. Of, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but what do you think of the music? Because I've seen a lot of people divided on how the music is. A lot of people don't like how minimalist it is. No, I love the minimalism. Yeah, because yeah, I, I was thinking about that. And um, to compare another game that I played recently, uh, Persona 5, which has a fantastic soundtrack, just like, you know, comes at you, is in your face all the time. That becomes really exhausting mm. after you've been in a dungeon for a couple hours. I would say uh, so, yeah. Yeah, so I, I really, after I, I wasn't sure about the minimalism at first, but after I played Persona 5, I was like, yeah, okay, I think I understand what Zelda was going for, and I'm glad they did that. Yeah, well, I mean, I like that when you're running across the field, that it's not like Ocarina of Time, where it's like, do, 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 yeah, yeah. right? Like, <laughs> that would have gotten exhausting after a while. Yeah. Um, I like the the sound of the wind rustling through the trees and the grass. Mm-hmm. Um, the music that kind of like lightly comes up when you're fighting an enemy. And then when the real music c- kicks in, you know that there's like a big thing going on that Yeah. It it works, I yeah. think. And the interesting thing is I play with headphones all the time, even though there's not that much music, because mm-hmm. it's so atmospheric in the way that it mm-hmm. presents everything. So Yeah. Exactly. And you start riding a horse and sometimes the that's when the main theme kicks in, like but only very subtly. It's very nicely done. Is there room for improvement with Breath of the Wild? Probably. Yeah. But I don't think that should take away from the magnitude of its accomplishment. So No, absolutely not. As for the DLC though, I don't think I'm going to play it. It sounds like that you haven't you haven't gotten to the Eventide Island uh, shrine yet. I'm assuming um, no. it sounds like a very hard version of that. And Eventide Island was one of the most interesting 
parts of the game yes, for me. Yes, everybody so, loves Eventide, yes. Yeah, so I can understand the appeal, but I can't deal with gold Lionels. <laughs> <laughs> but I probably will buy the DLC because I do want that story pack. I have not killed a Lionel yet. Um, I have some powerful weapons. I, <clears throat> my, my most powerful one-handed weapon was able to get it to about three quarters of its health down. Mm-hmm. But once that sword broke, I had to switch over to uh, my two-handed weapons. And, and those are too slow. Too slow. Um, and I just, I wasn't able to get in the shots without getting hit. And it yeah. was doing too much damage when I was getting smacked. So, Yeah, and the interesting thing about Zelda is, yes, it does lack enemy variety. But enemies do attack you very differently according to what mm-hmm. they are wielding. So... I have gone up against Lionel that I've had an easier time with because they had a two-handed sword. Mm-hmm. And if I just stayed out of their way, they didn't have the time to really turn around and grab me. But sometimes they did. So, yeah. I think that's the trick. It doesn't necessarily matter that the enemies look the same as long as they're mm-hmm. doing different things. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mass Effect Andromeda, it felt like, had an extremely limited enemy selection. That was really starting yeah. to bother me. Cause, and some of it was that you were fighting them the same way every time. Mm-hmm. Like in Andromeda, there was like two enemies that I found particularly annoying. One started out as the boss. It has like this rotating shield thing. And you would <laughs> shoot the shield. You would shoot the weak point on the shield until it would break. Um, then shoot him a whole bunch. And then shield would regenerate, rinse and repeat. It's pretty boring. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's a a Krogan thingy that will charge you. And right. basically it's a bullet sponge. And you pull bullets into them. And then they're like regular enemies and like they all do the same thing every time and you see them and like come and it's just waves after wave after them. So that's boring, right? Where yeah, like clearing out a Boku camp, I think is interesting because you see, you see the camp from afar, you know, okay, how am I going to approach this? I, if I just charge right in, there's a, there's a non-zero chance that I will actually get overwhelmed yes. and killed. Yeah. So the strategizing that goes into approaching each encounter, like, makes it inherently more interesting. Mm-hmm, definitely. Uh, like, uh, I, I start. I really wasn't a big fan of the the wearing out weapons at first, but then I realized, okay, this actually is meant to challenge me. This is meant to mm-hmm. kind of orchestrate how I play this game. Like, do I want to go in there and, and with my sword swinging and, and go through my equipment, or do I want to strategically shoot an arrow? It's hanging on the, uh, over a lantern that's like hanging over some explosive barrels for some reason, but let's not question that. Just kind of really kind of put a dent in their forces before I go in there. Well, the we- weapon degradation to me, I think, is meant to keep you moving, to always keep you exploring, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. you're like going, ah, oh, crap, my weapons are in not great shape. Um, I need to go find some enemies to kill to like find new ones, essentially. Yeah. And that can like push you into new and interesting areas. Mm-hmm. Um, and it forces you to be like pretty considerate about how you approach an encounter as you said it's like oh I can't just run in with my uber powerful sword um, because I don't know when it's going to break so I'm going to try and play uh, play conservatively maybe use some arrows that kind of thing try to mm-hmm. shoot the explosive barrels like the constraints force you to be creative yeah and uh, enemies also behave differently according to who else they're like kind of teamed up with like have you ever had a moblin throw up a cobblin at you no 
<laughs> yeah, if a moblin, I think if he runs out of weapons or if you steal his weapons, he'll basically pick up one of the little guys and throw them at you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I've never actually had that happen, but yeah, that's actually kind of amazing. Yeah. I like that they will grab a weapon and use it on you. That's that's yeah. pretty intense. Yeah. And again, how they fight depends on the weapon that they are wielding. And one thing I've noticed that's very interesting is that um, this is another thing that kind of encourages you to get out there and explore is enemies don't scale with you. They scale according to region. So if you need a good weapon, you have to find a way to get into a, like kind of difficult enemy territory find a way to take down those enemies, and then you can, like, kind of score a good cash for yourself. Whereas if you just stick on, like, the Great Plateau, you're going to get sticks. So it, it does pay to get out there and, and look. Indeed. Well, the next batch of DLC is the story-driven uh, Champion's Ballad, which uh, perhaps might end up being a little bit more interesting and might grab Katie's attention more. Um, in the meantime, I got to finish... <laughs> <laughs> I gotta wrap up Breath of the Wild so that I can properly enjoy it, enjoy this DLC. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, one more thing uh, that I wanted to talk about before we jumped into the storm, uh, Stormblood uh, discussion. Jump into the storm. The storm. I, I, kept, I wanted to say Storm of the Wild for some reason. <laughs> That's the next game. <laughs> I would play Storm of the Wild. That'd be kind of fun. I would help. But, so yes, uh, I recently had a chance to talk to Nihon Falcom president uh, Toshiro Kondo, who was showing Ease 8. Um, the funny thing is I didn't actually get to play Ease 8. We just ended up talking Aww. the entire time. It was like an hour-long interview. And we oh, talked nice. at like some length about, you know, the evolution of Ease and mm-hmm. like why like they've stuck with Adol the entire time rather than like say... <laughs> pulling an Uncharted and like cycling him out for Nathan Drake or like <laughs> for Nathan Drake like Nathan Drake <laughs> yeah I, I would like Nathan Drake and Ease would be interesting he'd be like what the hell what am I doing here what the hell is this a sword talking a little bit about the Trails series uh, apparently they they do have an end in mind for the Trails series so oh really yes it's mm. uh they they uh, they have some kind of conclusion in mind down the line I suppose mm-hmm um, but we also talked about uh, consoles, and as you may know, Nadia, um, they have uh, moved off the Vita to the PlayStation 4, um, mm-hmm. and this is a relatively recent thing. Like, they have been mostly making PS3 and Vita games up until this point. Yeah. Like, Falcom, of course, um, is an old-school PC developer, but yeah. most recently, they've been focusing a lot more on console and handheld, and... Um, I think he said something that we kind of already knew, that the Vita is declining pretty heavily over in Japan. Pretty fast. And that the time has come to make the move, Mm -hmm. um, and that they're jumping over to the PS4. Um, the thing that, a couple things that jumped out at me first was that he perceives, Kondo perceives a general shift to the PS4 for a lot of Japanese developers. Um, Mm -hmm which suggests that console gaming might be a little bit more on the mend than we thought over in Japan, which is... Which is good. Uh, a re- kind of a relief. Um, and then mm-hmm. he also said that um, in his in his mind, smartphone developers are... Uh, maybe have had their fun and yeah. have gotten a little tired of the platform and are yeah. a little tired of making the same games and are ready for something new. Yeah, I definitely get that impression from the mobile market. Yeah, so that in that regard, they're going to shift back over to the PS4, which is 
which is nice. Um, yeah. <laughs> Cat breathes a sigh of relief. But R.I.P. Vita. Oh, what are your thoughts, Nadia? Uh, someone who uh, someone who came into the Vita party really late. It, it's really a shame, but at the same time, I'm really not surprised. Um, I've talked at length before about how probably the Vita's biggest flaw was that stupid proprietary memory. Mm-hmm. That was just. I think that really crippled it, especially in the states. Um, but I guess with the uh, with the Switch coming out and everything like that, or the Switch already out, uh, I could see why people would be making the jump even faster. Yeah, but he's playing. He's being pretty circumspect about the Switch. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I was wondering about. I that. asked him about it, and he said that as he said, "quote It's very Nintendo like," which I almost <laughs> wondered if that was like a backhanded what that compliment. Mean? Yeah. Um, and he said that they don't have anything in development for it. Um, mm-hmm. But of course, they would consider like something if they have a really interesting idea. Uh, but for now, they're playing wait and see. And it makes me think that a lot of Japanese developers are doing the same thing. Yeah, but the Switch is selling really well over there. And mm-hmm. frankly, I'd love to see Ease 8 on, on Switch. I'm kind of a newcomer mm-hmm. to Ease, but I really like the series. I'd like to see literally everything on the Switch. Yeah, I, I think everything should be on the Switch. Let's just like put everything on there uh, just give me give me a portable version of it and i will be a happy camper mm-hmm. i mean platinum is currently seemingly teasing a ton of things for the switch yeah i noticed now we're talking about like not only bayonetta one and two but wonderful 101 which i'd love to see get another chance yes absolutely um he did say that we talked a little bit about smartphone development and he said that if falcom can find a good way to mo- make a mobile game they might try it Mm-hmm. Um, there, there are ease games on mobile, but they're mostly like the older ones that got ported over there. He would go for a, a more traditional approach, though. Like they right. would not less free to play, maybe more of a traditional approach because they are a very traditional company. Yeah, but people have proven over and over again they don't want to pay for traditional mobile games. Yeah, that's weird. Mm-hmm. No, the way that weird, but not surprising. I don't understand the culture around mobile games. It's bizarre and messed up to me. <laughs> Especially the gotcha games. It's just a grind. It's a dumb grind that requires you to insert more coins. Insert more coins. Make more money. Yeah, pretty much. Um, I've I've gone to bat a few times for mobile, I, I, but I can appreciate it for what it is. Whereas, like, you know, I'm, I'm kind of glad that there's some sort of segregation going back into this where... Uh, Gotcha games are over here on mobile. That's fine. I like them for what they are. And, you know, more full-bodied games are over here where mm-hmm. I can play them with a damn controller. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, Falcom is also an interesting case because they're such an old company at this point. They are, yeah. They've been around since literally the early 1980s. Um, wow. Several of their games, like Xanadu and mm-hmm. uh, the Trails Legend of Heroes series, Legend of Heroes um and ease are all quite old like starting yeah, like the are. late 80s it's funny i never played ease like i know there were a few games on like nintendo systems but i never played them um it was always struck me as more of a sega kind of franchise well i mean pc yeah yeah and like they've yeah. always kind of done their own they've always kind of gone their own way like ease made it on to the super nintendo yeah i remember that but i never played it Kondo talked about his first gig at Falcom, which basically had to turn around a script for a game in like a week. I think it was like E3. And he said that he had never, he walked in having never, he walked in expecting to be an accountant. (laughs) 
And they said, have you ever written a script before? And he said, no. Well, write a script in a week for this game. Wow. So he went to the store, got a book on script writing, and did it. Oh, good for him. Wow. Just like the ancient days of game development are so fascinating. Just everyone wearing all these hats. That's exactly what he said about Falcom now. I was like, <laughs> I was like, like so many like mid-level or smaller independent developers have kind of gone away. Like, mm-hmm. how's Falcom survived? Like, what's your secret? And he said, well, we're a small company in which lots of people wear many hats. <laughs> and we are, an ex- we are extremely dedicated to making games. Mm-hmm. And I said... And to me, that translated to we're a small team and we work very long hours for relatively yeah. low pay. <laughs> <laughs> but they do good work. Yes. Uh, they, I mean, and they have, a, they have their franchises. I think that's mm-hmm. the important thing mm-hmm. is that they have the games with an established fan base. I remember Platinum saying a while ago that they needed their own IPs. Well, Falcom right. has had their own IPs forever. Yeah, and they've kept yeah, them right. fresh and relevant. Like they've mm-hmm. kept, they've kept Legend of Heroes in particular, and also Ease like relatively relevant with a small and fervent group of people who will always buy their games. Yeah, like the Ease fan base is very, it's relatively small next to you know Final Fantasy, but it's uh, very very dedicated and very thorough. Indeed, um, the other thing that he also mentioned, which I found interesting, he said that Falcom has never been in the red. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, Falcom's never been in the red. They've always kept it in the black. So, mm-hmm. uh, like, that seems to be a point of pride for them, which mm-hmm. is really remarkable when you take into account the cost overruns and everything yeah, associated absolutely. with game development. But their games have never been exactly, like, technical marvels or whatever. No, but they've always been good, solid games. Like, if you mm-hmm. want a good, solid RPG, you can always count on them. Yes, exactly. So, I... What... The picture that emerged for me was of a small, relatively conservative um, developer that knows exactly who they are Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and works very, very hard uh, to just keep pushing out games. Um, And and I like that, like, Kondo is a gamer. Like, do you know his origin story? No, I don't. Kondo was a fan. Like, he's, like, one of his first like projects was starting a fan site he started a fan site for ease oh that's adorable and he ended up working for falcom which of course was his dream job and now he freaking mm-hmm. runs the place wow good for him that's, that's amazing really cool. I love and that. he looks still comparatively young fresh-faced guy <laughs> wow i would think that like just japanese game development would suck the light the years out of you but good for him i mean Falcom is such an interesting case because you see so many developers like either just straight up going out of business or mm-hmm. like selling out. Mm-hmm. Like Fal- the fact that Falcom has stuck around as long as it has and like kind of continued along where it got started is uh, it's it's a success story, I think. Well, I think that the fact that it's run by a fan it, that says it all. Just a uh... Yeah, they probably do have to work insane hours uh, mm-hmm. for low pay, but it seriously just comes right out of the heart. It's totally a labor of love. Yeah, maybe. I suppose so. It, it's always nice and refreshing for me to meet developers who are still really into game development. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, there are a couple of them, and they they still live in... And a lot of them are in Kyoto, actually. 
<laughs> One of them is uh, Jake Kasdahl, who made the um, Galaxy. Mm-hmm. And he hasn't exactly had an easy time of it as a independent developer, like making Skulls of the Shogun and the like. Like He admits that he's made a lot of mistakes and everything. The guy's been in the industry forever. Like mm-hmm. He worked on, he was a freaking Super Nintendo game counselor back in the day. Oh, man, that's amazing. He was in the room when the Super Nintendo came in. Like, mm-hmm. and he saw it for the first time. He was like, that's not the Super Famicom. What the hell? <laughs> he, that's great. He worked on the Dreamcast. He he worked under, um, uh, he, he worked on Res. Like, he, mm-hmm. he worked uh, on all of those games. And, like, he, the guy has really done it all. And still, like, he has this starry-eyed kind of perspective on games. Like, he just really, like, mm-hmm. thinks games are so cool. <laughs> I think that's one reason why Iwata's death hit us all so hard, just the fact that he, you know, even though he was the president, he was still amazing at programming. He was still a gamer at heart. Like, he wasn't joking when he said that. He's not cynical. No, it's exactly. Not just that's about that's business. really important. It's not just about yeah. making money. And that, to be honest, makes me feel less cynical and less pessimistic because it's like... Mm-hmm. Like in this line of work, you meet so many people, so many developers are like, eh, whatever, mm. it pays the bills. I don't care. Like so many of them. <laughs> like there was one of the most disheartening experiences I ever had was like I went, I took an appointment for a free to play mobile game because the guys who were working on it were like old school developers. Mm. And they're like, I asked them, like I was asking some questions about their old stuff and they're like, eh, whatever. Next up's gone. We're working on this now. We don't Aww. care. It's money. It's going to make <laughs> money. And I'm like, oh my god. Wow. I mean... That's sad. I get it. Like, they're they're within the rights to build their own business mm-hmm. around... Uh, they're within the rights to try and find stability in an extremely unstable world, in an, an extremely, extremely unstable industry. Mm-hmm. But man, what a cynical approach. To, yeah, that's too bad. Yeah, but uh, Kono does not seem to be one of those people. Like they, they really care about the games. <laughs> <laughs> They're all about the games. It's in their blood. It's in their heart. And they've stuck around for a long time. That's good though. Like I'm really glad to hear that because this industry, let's be honest, it can wear people down. It can destroy them. So I'm glad that there's just like that kind of purity, and that, that hope and love and very Japanese sort of JRPG friendship thing going on over there. <laughs> All right, we are going to continue on to our Stormblood discussion. Uh, Don't go away. And we're back with our occasional guest, reviews editor, contributor, Mike Williams, who is our kind of MMO guy. He's our go-to MMO guy. And he reviewed Stormblood, I think, last week. Uh, Stormblood's been out for a little bit now since E3. But we, for whatever reason, it's been extremely busy here at the end of June. We've had a lot to cover. But I've always wanted to be kind of circling around back to Stormblood. And here we are. Mike, you really liked Stormblood. Uh, You had a lot of praise for it in your review. So, uh, yeah, like... Just uh, maybe talk a little bit about, as an MMORPG fan in particular, like why this this expansion really speaks to you. Uh, Stormblood, I mean, ever since the Realm Reborn uh, sort of uh, revamp, Final Fantasy has been 
a very competent MMO. But starting with Heaven's Word, which was their first expansion, they really started to kick off uh, this idea of focusing on the story. So there's still all the things that come with MMOs. There's, you know, gathering, crafting, uh, dungeons, raids, MMOs. But um, FF14 as a whole tries to do a better job of sort of integrating some of that stuff into the main story plot. Uh, and unlike, uh, for say, wow, wow story is based on the idea that you are sort of the er character and it's like your story and, and FF 14 touches that with the warrior of light, but where it's really strong is in the supporting cast that it carries forward, uh, from heaven's word, uh, into storm blood. Like you have a core, uh, the signs, signs of the seventh dawn, uh, which is sort of your core team that that sort of mills around you, uh, and then depending on uh, what the point of the plot between Heaven's Word or, or uh, Stormblood, there's sort of extra characters that are more tied into that plot, which is why a lot of people, uh, some may have heard, uh, oh, this is this is the the Final Fantasy. Like, this is the main Final Fantasy that really does it right. And it's those supporting characters that really make it work very well. A lot of people <laughs> say that Final Fantasy fourteen is basically, it's a Final Fantasy game. Like, it has all of the stories and all of that stuff. And that it should be treated as not something entirely separate from uh, kind of the series. Uh, so, in that light, is it... Is it the kind of game that you can really solo like pretty easily? Um, so yes, for most of it. Uh, like I said, I was talking that they integrate the dungeons into the story plot. One of the things I do dislike is certain dungeons and uh, primal fights. Primals being the uh, summoned... Uh, characters uh, in the original game it was Ifrit and stuff like that and this one it's uh, Susano O and Lakshimi uh, those are integrated into the story meaning you can't com- move forward in the main quest until you've at least run them once uh, which is annoying especially if you don't necessarily want to uh, but yeah, it's it's one of those things that I'm kind of like, uh, I understand why you're doing this, but it annoys me. So in the headline for your review, you said that the unique way that it forces you to play leads to interesting payoffs. So what's the unique way that it makes you play? Uh, so it does not let you skip. So a lot of MMOs, when a new expansion comes out, what they try to do uh, is they try to make sure that, that players can get on the opening foot of that expansion as soon as possible. So WoW offers a uh, level boost for free every expansion. You get a, just one. Uh, uh, Elder Scrolls Online says, hey, uh, everything level scales, so it doesn't matter. So more when came out, you could play more when right from the beginning. A lot of MMOs do that. They're like, okay, expansion, we want people to get in with that rush. Uh, FF14, for the most part, does not do that at all. You can get a level boost, uh, 
but it costs, I believe, $25 off the top of my head. Uh, and that's $25 for the level boost for one job. And that doesn't cover the story. The story boost, I believe, is another $15. So it's pretty expensive. Um, so otherwise, you have to actually play through the entire story. So if you want to play Stormblood now, you have to play starting from the very first main story quest of A Realm Reborn all the way through. Uh, they released a couple of story patches after that. Then you have to play all of the Heavensward uh, quests and the story patches after that. Just to start Stormblood. <clears throat> and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, because, <clears throat> I mean, it's late game content, right? And I would think that, I know, I, I, I at least would want to be... It's a story, right? So I, I wouldn't mind being able to play through all of it uh, to eventually get to that point. Right. I, I always thought World of Warcraft had a pretty a pretty solid um, compromise in that regard. Um, and a lot of, like, in some of their latter expansions, uh, once you hit um, uh, Wrath of the Lich King and things like that, you would have the new class that would kind of jump in right into the new content right away. Um, it would have a brand new starting area and everything. But then all the old classes would still have the old starting areas. So you could kind of approach it either way that you wanted. Oh, I want to dive right in. I'm going to play as like uh, a worgen so that I can see what the, the story is going on. Correct. Versus, uh, I'm just going to play through it all naturally and eventually get there. Yeah, and, and the unique payoff of that is uh, when you know that every, for the most part, every player has played through the entire story, you can call back to things that have happened mm. uh, way far back. Uh, in fact, at the beginning of Stormblood, there's this character uh, who asks you, it's like, hey, it's you. Do you remember me? And that character is actually a reference to a quest that I believe was like, I want to say like a level 15, level 20 quest back in the very first ff14 mm -hmm. so uh, like there are moments where they can call back to things because they know that they've essentially forced everyone to play through everything so you you're invested if you're playing stormblood if you're playing heaven's word they assume that you are invested in the story of the game or at least invested in the game enough uh that they can recall moments like that also uh, lets which, them tune the lets them tune the encounters and the difficulty and the balance, right? Because they have a pretty good idea of what what level you're going to be. Correct. They have a good idea of what level you're going to be. It does also help forcing the dungeons means that for the most part once you get to uh say the last fight of Stormblood, uh which is uh, an uh eight-man encounter, like they know, okay, you, you at least understand how to do your roles somewhat. Because you've had to do every dungeon up until this point, presumably. So can so what's a what's the broad overview of the story? Like, what are the stakes, and who is the villain? So the overall villain uh, has been the same uh, for Heaven's Word. I mean, not Heaven's Word for A Realm Reborn and Stormblood, which is the Garlean Empire, mm -hmm. um, which is the uh, an empire that uses Magitech 
and you'll hear a lot this this game refers to previous final fantasies all the time uh uses magitech uh and the garleans uh their royals actually look like the uh judges from final fantasy uh 12 um but anyways the garlean emperor has sort of carved out its niche of the world and it's uh, oppressing a certain uh, number of people uh, and there's an area called Alamigo, and one of your Scion of the Seventh Dawn characters is an exile from that area uh, since it has fallen under Garlean rule. Um, so you, uh, the Aeosian Alliance, pretty much all the, the good cities in the world decide to strike back and create a resistance. It does not go well. And then you are sent on a journey to the other side of the world because you figure, well, if we can't fight them at home, what if we fight them elsewhere? And then hopefully that will distract them enough that we can win at home as well. Uh, yeah, so and that's why you have all those wonderful um, vistas and beautiful um, environments and that kind of thing. The very the, Japanese. Yes. And this, so this is uh, like I, I asked. Uh, director producer Noyuki Yoshida about it if it was inspired by Japan and it's very weird because it's uh he he sort of fuzzed on it but it's clear that um like Kugane is Japan uh there's the Ruby Sea uh Azim Steps feels like sort of Mongolia uh there's a Yangtzea which is clearly China like they're they're clearly inspired by that side of the world Whereas Heaven's Word was definitely a very European, Gothic, medieval style. Uh, so it's uh, it's interesting seeing that that sort of look from that side, uh, and it's a good look. And then uh, of course we've added the samurai. Red Mage is supposed to be from that sort of side of the world, but uh, it doesn't really have the same feel. It's more of a swashbuckler magic user. Um. But yeah, no, it's it's beautiful vistas. It it's, looks amazing. Uh, they added swimming, which, as I said in my review, was uh, less of a revolutionary addition and more of sort of a evolution of flying, which was added in Heaven's Word. Yeah, what does swimming really bring to it? I like just to be able to make more elaborate dungeons. Um, so. <coughs> The dungeons don't actually use it. Um, the areas leading up to dungeons will use it. Uh, it does allow for more interesting level design, but uh, the reason I, I compare it to flying is like flying. You can't actually fight while you're doing it. So when you're swimming underwater, there's nothing, there's no combat or anything. It's just pure exploration and movement around a specific environment. So, so they do uh, certain things. They give you new vistas and stuff like that, and it's a different way to get around. But uh, in the wash, it doesn't really add a ton to the game that wasn't already there. But you also have what two two new classes, and yep. like how does it how does it work like in conjunction with your existing class? Can you just be like, well, I have opted to choose uh, change to a new class? So, so uh, Final Fantasy XIV system has always been super flexible. Hmm. Uh, you switch classes simply by equipping a different weapon. Uh, and each class uh, levels up on its own. Gotcha. So, okay. so uh, I have a 
a level 70 paladin and I believe my white mage on that same character, my white mage level is like, I want to say 45 or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are a lot of players. It encourages you to play the game over and over again. And a lot of uh, hardcore players tend to have uh, max levels of a number of classes so they can switch. Like, oh, hey, what do we need today? Uh, instead of switching a character, they just equip a different set of gear and now they're that new class. So with Samurai and Red Mage, uh, those start at um, level 60. Uh, they're quests to open them up, and you get the, the sort of soul crystal for that class and a starting set of gear. Uh, with the Samurai, it's a uh, katana uh, is the weapon that will switch you over to the Samurai class. Uh, with the red mage, it's a rapier and crystal combination. Which one did uh, you end up liking better? Uh, samurai. I, uh, I can't get over samurai. <laughs> it's it's a very nice class. It does damage mm. really well, and it's very pretty. Plus, like, you get to have a katana. That's rad. Right? And and all of the armor looks cool. And uh, uh, red mage has some interesting mechanics in the way that it it, it uses magic from far away. Uh, to sort of power this gauge and then it leaps into combat to use some rapier strikes and then it leaps back out to use magic again. So it, it's a well-designed class. I just didn't... It, it wasn't my jam. Sure, of course. Um, so what is the absolute best part of the expansion without spoiling anything? Oh, best part of the expansion. Uh, I really like the villain Xenos. Uh, mm. uh, I, I think a good villain elevates uh, pretty much any RPG. What uh, what what kind of mold is he in? Uh, he is uh, one of those. I'm trying to think of the best way to say it. Uh, sort of a. a doesn't care about life except beyond combat and finding strong opponents Uh, i see okay one of those guys yes so so he's he's very much a come on let's do this let's fight there's nothing worth it and once you're beneath his notice combat wise he doesn't really care if you live or die um as opposed to ooh, you're an interesting challenge Yes, and that's that's essentially where the without spoiling too much, that's where the player character, of course, ends up over the course of Stormblood. Like a, oh, I like you, I like you because you can fight. <laughs> can you take him on? Can you take him out on your own, or is it? Do you really need to have a um, help of friends or like other people? So some of your encounters will be uh, with. By yourself, solo. A lot of your encounters with Xenos are solo. Um, but I will say that your last encounter with Xenos is a dungeon fight. Oh, okay. So it's at the end of a dungeon. So for the most part, it's just you one-on-one with the mm-hmm. villain. Um, and you don't have to worry about other players. But when push comes to sub, that final the confrontation is a, hey... It's a, a dungeon, and he's the last thing uh, at that dungeon. 
So, okay, so we've had two expansions now for Final Fantasy XIV. Well, where do you think that it can go from here? Um, <clears throat> probably at this point, the, the last... Uh, there's still areas of the map that haven't been 100% touched, but it, it feels like we're getting closer and closer to actually fighting within the Garlean Empire. Uh, which will be an interesting change because we you sort of get uh, feelings of what that looks like, like the Garlean Empire uh, from the architecture and stuff that you see feels sort of like that Final Fantasy VII Midgar, sort of the the more high tech Final Fantasy, the more darker, uh, grittier, uh, less fantasy style Final Fantasy. Uh, which you, you sort of see sometimes in a few dungeons here and there and in a few areas of the game. But uh, I think that's probably the next step. Where they go beyond that, I really don't know. It's fair enough. Um, and if if somebody, if a Final Fantasy fan were to try and get into Final Fantasy fourteen, what class would you suggest that they start out with? Oh. Uh. Oh, that's a that's a hard one. <laughs> uh, I can never seem to find the class for me in an MMORPG. One of the reasons that I liked Star Trek Online was that it was relatively simple in that regard. Um, I mean, you could have your tactical and your engineering and your science ships, but like that was pretty self-explanatory to me, right? Um, I was like, oh, well, obviously I want to get the Enterprise I want to get the Enterprise. And it would, like, open up all of the different ships to you. It would just have different abilities. Um, Uh, I'd probably say... hmm, I I, I get a feeling that a lot of people will probably... uh, Black Mage. That's probably the easiest. Um, All right. Fair enough. Because Black Mage, it's your ranged, uh, magical, your DPS. It has very Final Fantasy flavor to it. You have a cool hat. Right, you have the hat um, <laughs> and that general look. Um, there are other classes that I think are interesting, but uh, like some of them, like Dragoon, uh, sort of the class mechanics take some getting into. Uh, Monk is the same the Dragoon way. Dragoon is my favorite, though, is the problem. <laughs> like, they're yeah, always I, my favorite in the Final Fantasy. I mean, if you're willing to, to, to just take a little time and, and learn the mechanics, uh, it's very fun. Pretty much all of the DPS classes are a ton of fun. Mm. Um, Ninja was one of the harder ones, uh, but it's not as bad now. I always um, have a hard time with DPS because you have to be really good at burst, like in y- doing the maximum amount of damage really fast and being able, right. to, and like being able to not only kind of optimize your build in that regard but being able to do the abilities in the right order at the right time which is a lot harder than it looks to be honest yeah yeah no if you don't play mmos a lot uh learning the what mmo players call the rotation is Mm -hmm. is is pretty much key to playing any mmo now um and every class has sort of a, like, here's the basic combos that you use over and over again. And here are the extra or situational buttons that you'll need if this happens or this happens or this happens. Uh, and I'm fairly used to it. I, I always play tank. 
uh, and tank or healer in most of my MOs. I'll usually start with a tank, and then my either my second character or second class will be a healer. Um, I'm not a big fan of DPS, just period. I, I, I don't find it interesting. Glass cannon. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so um, the samurai is actually really cool. Like I said, it's it's uh, fairly powerful. Um, all of your attacks are pretty. Like you're slashing, you're creating, you're like drawing moons with your sword or, or slashing and creating uh, cherry blossoms in the air. Cool. Or, yeah. No, it's it's a very pretty class. It strikes me that Final Fantasy fourteen is kind of avoiding the trap of World of Warcraft, which... It still has like the primary like overarching enemy for you to fight, whereas World of Warcraft it seems um, maybe chewed through a few too many of its biggest and baddest enemies <laughs> uh, over the course of a handful of expansions. Are like, well, uh, that takes care of Deathwing and Arthas and the uh, Kaelthos and all them. Hmm, now what? Uh, guess we're going to have time-traveling orcs? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, and the, the latest one has been, um, and I, I just wrote a new story about this, so the most recent patch, Legion is all about the Burning Legion again. Right. Uh, and the latest it's patch... It's a sequel to Burning Crusade. Right, and the latest patch has actually uh, sort of opened a rift in space and on the other side of the rift, and actually in the game, the skybox has changed. It is now the Legion home planet of Argus. Mm. Uh, so all of your fighting there is actually done from essentially mystical spaceship. Yeah. <laughs> so it's it's very weird, but actually kind of cool. I always um, thought World of Warcraft kind of ruined the lore of Warcraft because I, I thought that it was in a relatively good place after Warcraft 3. I, I really enjoyed Warcraft 3 and the directions that it took the entire story from Warcraft 2. And yes, this is kind of adjacent to uh, this is kind of adjacent to Final Fantasy 14. But it seemed that Square, it seemed that Blizzard was at such pains to find content that they started to get a little goofy. <laughs> I'm not going to lie with where they went um particularly with harrison jones i think it was and all oh, of that fun. stuff oh he's so much fun in hearthstone but when you look at the broader lore you're just like what are you even what are you doing <laughs> uh yeah wow at this point sort of touches on everything yeah and, and the, it's yeah. like as the plot as the plot demands it shall it shall be like yeah. The fact that, like, I would believe they could, they have now entered what some might call the Tyson zone. Like, if you said that World World of Warcraft did it, I would totally believe you. It's like, oh, yeah, World of Warcraft, like, totally introduced, like, a dirty, hairy kind of element. And by the way, there's also some Star Wars in there now, too. And I'd be like, yeah, yeah, of course. Yep. That's exactly what they would do. Blizzard can do literally anything they want with this. For God's sake, they did Mean Streets of Gadget Zan with Hearthstone. <laughs> Yeah, no, they did. Where it was uh, like like nineteen twenties like gangster stuff, and you're like, oh, okay, whatever, sure. Yeah, no, at this point, if they if they found like say uh, if they continue to expand outwards into space, like right now, like I said, it's like a magical rift in space. Um, but if they continue to sp- span outwards, I would not be surprised if they like found like the planets or galaxy that starcraft takes place on or something like that 
Um, I don't think they ever will, but I wouldn't be surprised if they did. I'm, a, I'm impressed that Final Fantasy XIV is really healthy, seemingly very healthy, very vibrant, and can like pretty easily get away with charging a subscription to its, its followers. And in, in this day and age, kind of defies the idea that MMORPGs as a genre is on its way out. I mean, at this point, it's hard to, I think, start a new MMO. Mm-hmm. Um, but the people that have been playing will continue to pay. Like, I don't think of my, I, I have a $15 a month uh, MMO budget that sort of floats between FF14 and WoW. That I don't think about. It's it's like uh, it, it goes into the same mental pile as like my Netflix subscription, and and you know my Crunchyroll subscription and stuff like that. Like I don't think about it. That's just fifteen dollars. That's always gone. Uh, occasionally, every now and then, it'll bump up to thirty dollars. So like right now, uh, I'll probably pay for a month of Wow. Um, just to catch up to the 7.3 content and see what that's about. Um, so like for one month, it'll be 30 bucks, but for the most part, I don't think about it. And a lot of people I talk to also don't think about that subscription fee because you're already paying it. Uh, it, whereas if it was a new game, like you're looking at it and you're like, ah, it's just interesting to me because it feels like world of Warcraft is like the kind of game that is maybe more of an MMORPG in the most traditional sense of the word. Like, I am going raiding. I am going dungeon diving. Like, that is what I'm doing. I'm playing with my friends. I'm in a guild. Like, the story content is cool, but maybe that's a little secondary. Whereas in Final Fantasy XIV, like, it strikes me that maybe the story is, like, the prime motivator to always be playing that game. Um, And so many MMORPGs fall into that dreaded content gap you know when the story runs out and people are like okay now what do i do well i guess i'm going to stop playing now so the fact that final fantasy 14 can put so much emphasis on the story and but also keep up the momentum is actually really impressive yeah and and i mean there are there's rating there are dungeon runs uh generally what i i point to as the main points of 14 are the story and uh dressing up your characters (laughs) in wild gear which a a lot of people you know do pvp or do raiding and stuff just to get new gear to dress up their characters uh and i mean some people pretty um but yeah there there's sort of like a a really nice looking mmo and it is it's very good looking mmo um but in uh a no clips documentary about the rebirth of final fantasy yoshida mentioned that He's sort of fine with the idea of people um, coming back when there's a new story patch, playing the game, getting through the story, and then leaving. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he has made uh, like he said specifically like I, I don't want to make a game that I, I that you feel forced to log in and play every day. So for him, the idea that people uh, launch. Uh, like got in for the Stormblood launch, played all the way through the main story, and then stopped is the way it's supposed to be. Um, I generally think that most people probably don't unsub, though. So I, I think what ends up happening is they probably 
do play, say, through the main story patches uh, while subscribed, and then maybe they go away for two months, but they're still sc- subscribed. <laughs> so, so of course, as far as Square Enix is concerned, I mean, whatever. You know? Yeah, they can go to sleep on their giant pile of money, whatever. <laughs> they're totally fine with that. Yeah. But uh, no, there isn't this sort of need to like, I have to go in every day uh, that I, I sort of sometimes I used to have with WoW. So Final Fantasy XIV, uh, Stormblood, final thoughts? It is a very good game and everyone should play it, especially if you love the RPGs. It is very hard to get into. It is a commitment uh, and that's actually a thing I'm writing right now, but uh, um it is well worth it, I, I, I personally believe, uh, if you put in the time. And Stormblood, high-quality expansion? Uh, very high-quality. They, uh, the team at uh, Square Enix that works on 14 seems to be getting better with every expansion. They, they are getting more confident. They are getting better at their storytelling, um, better at the writing. So I. Does it have the best dungeons so far? Mmm... Uh, I really liked Heavensburg's dungeons. It has some really good dungeons. They just released yesterday, um, the first raid, which is Omega, and that is a really good raid. So what I've played so far. So uh, I'm gonna say it's still really like it's a primo experience. What's the best MMO expansion you've ever played? Oh, is mm. it this one? This is really good. I uh, modern. I'm gonna say this. Uh, nostalgia talking. I'm gonna say Burning Crusade was mine. Really? Because uh, that that was the beginning of me becoming a hardcore mm. hardcore raider, hardcore like MMO player. I was I was dropping hours into Burning Crusade. I was playing until 3 4 a.m uh trying to progression clear like dungeons and stuff um and one of the things i always like caution with people especially with nostalgia is you you sort of can't get that experience back like i don't think if i played burning through burning actually no i have played through burning crusade now (laughs) i don't i don't particularly like it (laughs) um playing through it again um because it's old now right it's old now and the story it was awesome in 2007 yeah the storytelling uh has changed and blizzard has also gotten uh a lot better with how it tells its story with how it presents its content um but for the pure feeling that was that was like a really important period to me um what do you think goes what do you think is essential for a good mmorpg expansion uh, whew. I would say that you need at least a couple of good loot sets. Um, you need you need some kind of interesting twist on the old mechanics, um, and you need a a nice meaty uh like chain of quests. You need okay, so you need a a you definitely need a good hook narrative wise something that ties together all of your new content and pushes it forward 
Mm-hmm. Um, you definitely need at least one new class. Uh, and in the process of adding that new class and every, I think pretty much every uh, major MMO uh, still screws this up. You need to not completely destroy uh, one or all of your old classes <laughs> to sort of make them feel better. So uh, FF14 right now, uh, there are some people who are unhappy, some DPSs who are unhappy with their current versions. Um, and then pointing at Samurai and Red Mage and being like, those are awesome. Why can't we be awesome too? So, um, it's how it always, always goes, right? It, it is how it always goes. And uh, Yoshida has said in an interview with us, uh, yeah, I mean, he's like, I, I'd rather err on the side of new classes being overpowered in the beginning and then dialing that back down uh, rather than introducing something that is just weak right out of the gate. Make it awesome so that people will all want to play it. Right. Yes. Um, so, yeah, no, definitely you need that overall narrative hook that brings everything together. You need uh, probably a good villain that you're working your way up to. Uh, and you need new dungeons, definitely at least one new class. Uh, and don't screw up the rest of your classes in the process, although you, you most likely will. Um, I'm feeling good about Stormblood because Paladin is my main, and they're currently riding high on the tank side. So, All right. Final Fantasy XIV Stormblood is now available, and you can go read Mike's review, which uh, he kind of wrote over at, wrote over a period of time as he was playing through all of the content. He is finished now and so is our review so go check it out on us gamer um in the meantime thanks for coming on the show mike and we'll talk to you later later folks all right as usual we are going to be reading some comments from the past episode um first one is from bobby watson despite the incredibly stupid characters and very average story valkyria chronicles 2 was actually a good surprise for me the gameplay was fairly different because of the much smaller maps, but retained enough of Valkyria 1 to be enjoyable. It would be nice for Sega to remake it in HD, although I don't think it's ever going to happen considering the amount of work that would require to make the graphics look palatable on a big screen TV. I, I found that the maps in Valkyria Chronicles 2 were way too small. I never played Valkyria Chronicles 2, so but I've heard like mixed things about it. Um, it... It went for a much more of a high school comedy kind of approach, and the characters were maybe even more cliche than the ones that you found in Valkyria Chronicles 1. Ouch. Yeah. Um, but that didn't bother me per se. Like the story was fine for the most part. I think what, mm-hmm. and I think Valkyria Chronicles 2 is miles better than Re- Revolution. Mm-hmm. I, I think my main problem with it was that the maps were so small that they started to feel really samey and like constrained mm-hmm. and like claustrophobic, to be honest. Yeah, that wouldn't be much fun. Uh, Step Out agrees with you, by the way. Nadia's thoughts are correct. Symphony is better for its RPG art mechanics are a great homage to the Blood God. Hell yes. Uh, uh, Super Metroid is just perfect, though. Like, I will brook no argument on this front. Top but five not game even of like, all time. We have to, like, have a... We're going to have to have a throwdown about this because just... <laughs> 
Symphony takes Super Metroid, which is already a brilliant game, and just refines it. It's so it's so perfect. Does it refine it? I mean, could you well, honestly say that sense. its level design is as on point as like Super Metroid's level design? Super Metroid, uh, as much as I love the game, I find it really kind of slows down towards the end when you're in uh, what's the underwater world, Meridia, Meridia? or something like that. Yeah, but That's it has one of the ass. best bosses. It does have nice bosses. Yeah, like it has some of the best looking graphics on the Super Nintendo. I'm not even joking. That game if looks you don't amazing. like backgrounds. And it oh, goes by I so fast. Symphony of the Night, like everybody loves the surprise of the upside down castle, but I always found it to be kind of fillery. Well, yeah, but you can you can finish the game like quite like satisfactory just at the uh, you know the one hundred point. This is not me saying that I dislike Symphony of the Night. I like yeah, Symphony say, of the Night a lot. Obviously, it's an all-time classic. Yeah, <laughs> it is the greatest expression of the quote-unquote Castlevania Metroidvania like formula. Um, mm-hmm. Like it was a brilliant evolution of the original game. Right, and uh, by the way, if you don't watch. Uh, the uh, annotated symphony of the night by john learned yet you should um jaegermeister 3r says by releasing the snes mini nintendo will give me another chance to tackle those snes classics secret of mana and final fantasy 6 are still on my bucket list aha i'm not the only one (laughs) i'm finally thrilled to play the games on my tv there is the steam version of ff6 but the graphics are really ugly oh they're so bad Indeed. Uh, Rider Kicker says, Now that it's been a month since I finished Final Fantasy XV, I have to say the ending reminded me of Persona 3's ending as both characters. Spoiler! Not going to say it. <laughs> but, uh, yes, it reminds him of Final Persona 3's ending. Yeah, it was pretty clear that would happen once they achieved their goals, but it did li- little to make me not tear up despite whether or not their respective stories were a mess. doesn't matter mm-hmm. too much since those games were, are dependent on some form of nostalgia as you are to replay the events over and over to get the full experience. Nadia's right. Symphony is the best Castlevania, but I prefer Aria of Sorrow. I've oh, got to get back to playing Valkyria Chronicles, considering I bought the Dern game twice. <laughs> I prefer Dawn it. of Sorrow, by the way. I prefer Dawn, Dawn of Sorrow because it was on the DS. Yeah, Aria of Sorrow... Uh, was very good. I really enjoyed it, but it kind of suffered. It had a fantastic soundtrack that suffered for the GBA chip, as usual. Don of Sorrow, uh, Don of Sorrow was kind the, of refined. Don of Sorrow yeah. was, I, in my mind, the second best Castlevania game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. After uh, for me, it's a toss-up between Dawn and uh, and uh, Area, but they're both great. All mm-hmm. three of those are great. Castlevania, Symphony. the original Castlevania and Castlevania Three are also really good. Yep, very hard, but very good. <laughs> yes, they are all very, very hard. I missed Castlevania back in the day. Now, one oh, of the first man. times that I really hung out with Parrish, um, he had picked up a uh, like a Famicom Duo or something like that, I think, um, oh, while we yeah. were in Japan. And mm-hmm. we took it back to his hotel room and he plopped in the original Castlevania and proceeded to play <laughs> through it in its entirety and almost beat it. And he said, well, in order to beat it, I have to have like these things, essentially. Um, if otherwise, like it gets a little too hard for me. But like, yeah he had the whole muscle memory thing going because he played so much Castlevania like back in his day, you know? So, yeah. And it's the same thing for me with certain games where it's just like, I played that game so many times that it's just like, I know it. I know this game. Well, yeah, you demolished us all at Ninja Gaiden. (laughs) That's my game. But there are plenty of people who are so much better than me at that game. It's not even funny. Like I can get, I can get to the end. I can finish it, but it takes Mm -hmm. a bit. 
Like I beat it on a stream, if I recall correctly, but it took a number of false starts. <laughs> uh, Satellite of Love says Sega just simply does not have the teams to do anything but Yakuza and Sonic anymore. The rest, if they're still here, there are here, there, and everywhere in Sega now. It's, I mean, it's kind of true, yeah, um, which is yeah. unfortunate. Uh, and Dave Rahota says, you guys are going to hate this, but I sold my NES Classic and built a re- RetroPie box. <sighs> the 8-bit do SNES class- controller is really nice. If SNES Classic wasn't worth so much on eBay, I would have kept it, though. Mm-hmm. I have a SNES Classic pre-ordered, but the ability to put whichever translation I choose on games such as FF3 on RetroPie is really nice. Ooh, <laughs> wow, man. Pa- people have patched the new translation onto FF5, uh, FF6. That's actually really I cool. I think they might actually be referring to, uh, there's different translations out there that fans did. Like, there's one, I think, by Skyrender. He was one of the first ones to do mm. a, a fan translation. And to be completely honest with you, I'm not a fan of it. There's a lot of swear words. Um, okay. <laughs> that you're not, I'm not sure that we're there originally. Well, I'm sure uh, Final Fantasy VII taught us anything. It's swearing makes everything better. Well, it makes it, that means it's for adults, man. That means it's mature. Indeed. All right. And final one. Uh, this one is from Patrick Smith, and he sent us an email. He says, Dear Cat Nadia, I just wanted to share my conflicted views on the Xenoblade games, despite that being from the previous episode. First, I've been a fan of the Xeno games dating all the way back to when Xeno for Gears first came out, and I even enjoyed Xeno Saga. Yes, both Gears and Saga and their faults, but I still enjoyed them. I fervently backed Operation Rainfall when I couldn't, when it, it looked like NA wouldn't get Xenoblade Chronicles and was ecstatic when it came out. Now, after that long intro, I present my thoughts. The story in Xenoblade is amazing. Some people have called it cliched, but it is still very well told. The characters are endearing, and that music is amongst the best ever in an RPG. However, that battle system just does not click for me. Maybe I never found the right character for me, but the battles were always dull. In contrast, Xenoblade Chronicles X had pretty terrible music, the makings of an interesting story that never came together, and a less interesting world. But for some reason, I loved the battles in that game. <laughs> they were more engaging and exciting. The addition of being able to pick your main character's class was nice as well. Yes, that was mm-hmm. a nice addition. Even though the whole silent protagonist thing was, wasn't really that interesting. I'm hoping that Xenoblade 2 can somehow bring the vast improvements to the battles into an interesting setting and story like the first game. Even though I generally lean more toward the story side than gameplay side when picking my favorite RPGs, I would much rather play Xenoblade X. I ended up watching a Let's Play of the first game because I just couldn't bring myself to keep playing. All right. Well, that's uh, that's, that's, that's true. Like Xenoblade Chronicles X did in, uh, introduce some nice little, um, I, I would say, refinements to the actual battle system. Mm-hmm. I like the more bespoke nature of the Xenoblades uh, Chronicles encounters, um, particularly yeah. the boss encounters, um, and how you have to, like, figure everything out, like, have to figure out your party composition and everything, but um, having uh, classes and everything was pretty cool, and I hope that they yeah. have that in Xenoblade Chronicles, too. Yeah, me too, definitely. All right, Patrick, thanks for writing in, and of course, if you want to have your letter read on Axis of Blood God, send us an email at usgamer at usgamer.net, or just comment on the show notes. Uh, leave us a note, and we will read your note on the podcast, assuming that we like it. Like, we don't, we don't read everything. <laughs> Just the stuff that if you tell like. us to go to hell, we might not read it. Yes, uh, don't do that. We probably won't read that one. All right. Acts of Blood God is a U.S. Gamer podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever podcasts are sold. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and all of the other places. I'm on Twitter at the underscore catbot. Nadia is on a, it's there as at Nadia Oxford. And, of course, you can follow uh, U.S. Gamer at U.S. Gamer Net and Facebook 
US Gamer Net there as well. Next week, we're going to be back to be talking about Final Fantasy XII. I think that um, I'm going to try to arrange it so that we can get a Final Fantasy XII hater and a Final Fantasy XII lover on the show. We can finally have the throwdown. <laughs> Is Paris going to be the lover? Is Final Fantasy XII actually good? I bet people have thoughts. Yeah, send us oh, a thought. Yes. A US Gamer at usgamer.net. Do you think Final Fantasy XII is good? I've been playing the HD version a whole bunch. And you can look forward to my review of it next week. Oh boy, I do. Yes, I'm looking forward to it because then I can finish it up and go back to playing Breath of the Wild and Persona 5. (laughs) Yes, and there's so much. You know, it's already kind of a surprisingly busy month, Nadia. Like the next thing you know, it's going to be Splatoon 2 time and Destiny 2 time. You know, it's going to be Destiny 2 beta coming up. And that's neither here nor there for the podcast, but it will be here nor there for another podcast, which we are currently developing. Yes, we're going to have another podcast. It's very exciting. Yes, we are. A U.S. gamer. Like, it's the return of From Us to You, but it's going to have a different name because I don't like the name From Us to You. (laughs) (laughs) We were going over the list of names earlier, and I was just, like, dying at some of them. Yes. So please look forward to that. In the meantime, I've been Kat Bailey and Fernani and myself. Thanks for listening. We'll be back again, as always, next Friday. Until then, happy adventuring.